I've asked Aaron to do the scripture reading for us, which is from John chapter 4. <clears throat> John 4, 1 through 30 and 39 through 42. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees has heard, had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the, the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So let's say a quick prayer, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you so much that you have given your word to us in a language we can understand. It is not written in hieroglyphics or in some code. It is open and accessible to the heart that is open. We thank you that you teach willingly and lovingly. Open this passage and give us a deeper understanding of who you are and of who we are in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have uh, noticed uh, that I'm walking a bit stiffly. Um, Let me explain how that came to pass. After our first child was born, my wife said, you men have it so easy. You, You have no idea what childbirth labor are like. In a continuing effort to increase my knowledge in that area, My wife gave me a Peloton for Christmas. (laughs) Yesterday was my first time on the cycle Peloton. And so I am therefore walking like a cowboy who has been in a saddle way too long. But it has deepened my understanding of childbirth. So I'm about to uh, share with you one of my favorite stories in the Bible. My wife will tell you that my favorite story is always the one that I just read. But this is one of my top 50. Um, And it concerns the Samaritan woman. And this is a story for everyone, but for particularly for someone who has felt like an outsider or someone who desperately wants to belong but is not sure how or someone who has been despised or is troubled by self-loathing. And I'm going to spend the great chunk of my time just in going through the passage and talking about it. And then the last seven minutes or so, I'm going to give application because I see so much about life groups in this story. So don't be alarmed that I'm taking so long to get through the text because the second part, which are what I think are the five benefits of life groups that we see in this text, I get through fairly quickly. So separated as we are, from ancient Jewish culture, it is quite possible to fail to understand the utterly radical, scandalous, 
nature of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. In the eyes of rabbis at that time, indeed in the eyes of any self-respecting Jew, Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman disqualified him as a rabbi. It was highly irregular and controversial for a Jew to set foot on Samaritan soil. The Jews despised Samaritans. They were polygots. They were half-breeds. They were a little bit of Jew, a little bit of this, and they were just despised. Rabbis taught that touching a Samaritan made one ceremonially unclean, and you could not enter the temple until you were ceremonially cleansed. We don't have any real equivalent to that in our Western culture now, but two possible examples. In the, uh, let's say in uh, 1900, um, somebody in the Southeast would never have drunk from a water fountain that blacks drink from. They would never have eaten on a plate that a black person had just used. In India, if you are one of the Dalits, they're called the unclean, similarly, they were despised. You would not touch an unclean person, nor would you eat or use any utensil or article that they had used. So here is a Samaritan woman and in verse 9, it says that she was astonished, not surprised, not a bit taken aback, but astonished that Jesus spoke to her. So Jesus is like a rabbi. Rabbis won't even talk to women in public, be they Jewish women, maybe their mother, maybe a sister, but otherwise, no. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, and she is astonished that he would do so. And then later, the disciples come onto the scene after Jesus has had a deep conversation with her that we'll go into a little bit. And they were amazed, not surprised, not slightly taken aback. They were stunned. They were dumbstruck. They were thunderstruck that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. And it says, but none of them said anything to him. That's probably because Jesus had do done so many surprising things that shocked them that they weren't going to put their foots in their mouths one more time and ask, what are, you, what are you doing? What's this about? But they really wanted to. Jesus initiated the conversation. Here she was getting water in the hottest part of the day. Now, you get water in the early morning and you get water in the early evening. It is a communal exercise. The women would travel up the hill to the well. Together, they would talk, they would socialize, they would get the water and they would return to Samaria. So this common woman comes in the hottest part of the day alone. Why? She was isolated, despised, and alone. She was accustomed to the roll of the eyes. 
the sneer, the contemptuous whispers. Coming in the hottest part of the day was her only protection from such behavior. She was herself defiant, unconventional, hands on your hip type of woman. She would curse you out as soon as speak to you. She had developed a thick skin because of all the barbs she had had to endure before. She was angry and she was lonely. She felt dirty and unclean, but she would have cursed you out if you had suggested such a thing. She had probably been used and abused by many men, a sex object, painfully trading her body for crumbs of attention and affection. And here, Jesus, a man and a Jew, starts a conversation with her. And astoundingly, he spoke with kindness, respect, and compassion. Verse 15, the woman said to her, um, uh, Sir, well, let me back up a little bit. So Jesus is talking with her about him needing water. So there's really several things going on. He initiates the conversation. He says, I need your help. I don't have anything to draw with. Would you get some water for me? I will drink the water that you touch. She is astounded by this. And so Jesus said, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, I would give you a water that lasts forever and that would well up into eternal life. Now, she hasn't realized quite yet that the conversation has gone from the material and temporal to the spiritual and eternal. She will come to realize it, but not yet. So she says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And just then, the woman is beginning to realize something profound is going on. So in verse 14, the woman said to him, now, <clears throat> when Jesus said, I'm going to give you this real water, I suspect that there's a long pause. And the woman is thinking, okay. He's got nothing to draw with. He needs me to draw the water up for him. But he's talking about water that will dispense my need to come up this mountain every day. He said, okay, I, I want this water. And Jesus says something very interesting. He said, go. Call your husband and come back. When Jesus says this, this is not an imperious command. Go, get your husband and get back here. No. This is an incredible invitation. Spoken lovingly. He says, why don't you go? 
get your husband and come back. You and I cannot appreciate fully, but this is probably the first time anyone has ever told this woman, I want you to come back. I want us to spend some time together. <sighs> this was a stunning situation for her. And so when Jesus tells her, go and call your husband and come back, the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right. In saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The text does not tell us, but the circumstances strongly suggest that there is a long pause between Jesus' statement to her and her response. The things that were going around in her mind. These are secrets deep in the heart, buried deep so that she would not have to face them, she would not have to think about them, in which she had never shared with a single living soul. No husband of hers had ever known how many previous husbands she had. The man she's living with does not know. How in the world does he know? And then, because she's labored so hard to keep her sin hidden, even though she was obviously despised as a sinner in the Samaritan community, they really didn't understand how bad a sinner she was. But of course, they didn't understand how bad of sinners they were. And so after this long pause, where Jesus has just stripped away all that shell, he has pulled aside the veil, and he's looked down into the ugliness that has been her life. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the hurt, all the sense of I am nothing and worth nothing and nobody loves me or will ever love me. And she says, I see that you're a prophet. And when Jesus spoke to her, it wasn't with a condemnation. It was with the tenderest affection. You've spoken rightly. You've had five husbands. And it's like he's saying, I know how they mistreated you. I know how you yearn to have a relationship. I know how broken hearted and abused you feel. So you go, you come back. And she says, sir, it's obvious that you are a prophet because no one could look into my heart the way you have and expose what I have hidden all these years. Jesus revealed intimate knowledge of her sins. He knew intimate details of her life that only she knew and which she had worked so very hard to keep secret, even from herself. Have you ever done that? There are things in your past that shame you so much 
you do your best not to think about them. And every once in a while, there's an event or a word or a scene that brings that thing hidden in the past straight out in front of your mind. I've had that happen. Why didn't this woman explode when Jesus said, in effect, I know how sinful you are. Let me suggest just three reasons, and there are more. Jesus' statement revealed but did not condemn. Second, she was finally free. Her secret was known, and instead of Jesus reaching for a stone, he invites her to come back. Her statement was followed by compassion, not condemnation. Somehow, this statement of exposing her worst sins, which she believed correctly, had separated her from God, were now being used to bring her closer to God. How can this be? Third. She could finally be herself. For the first time in years, she had the sense that just maybe she could move forward. Just maybe the pit that she had been in for years would be gone and she could walk on level ground again. That she wouldn't have to live in shadows but in the sunlight. Just possibly I might be treated as a person. So Jesus had spoken with obvious loving kindness. She felt accepted, not rejected. Loved, not judged. This is one of the rare times that a man had spoken to her with affection, compassion, and respect, and without any hint of sexual interest or desire. She was absolutely stunned. And what was her response? To run back downhill to tell the people what had just happened to her. While she's gone, the disciples come to Jesus and they don't question his conversation with the Samaritan woman. Because remember, his disqualification would cover them as well. But they don't say anything. But then he says, you know, I want you to look. The fields are white already for harvest. And I want you to picture this image. That here are these Bedouins in the village. With long white flowing robes running uphill. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. The harvest is here and now. It's blooming in front of your very eyes. And they're probably looking for wheat. And he's talking about souls hungry for salvation, running uphill in Bedouin clothing. So the Samaritan's woman's response is nothing short of remarkable. She runs back to the village and tells the people gladly 
and enthusiastically that Jesus had revealed what a sinner she is. Verses 28 to 29. So the woman left her water jar, because she's planning to come back, and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now this is the same woman who an hour before would be when people saw her, they would move to the other side of the street. She was never invited to a social gathering. Every time somebody passed her or looked at her, there was a sneer. There were whispers. The man she lived with probably treated her very disrespectfully. And she runs and says to the people, Christ has come. He's revealed all my sins. He's laid them out. And this testimony is so dramatic, so powerful, and they look at her face. This woman has obviously been transformed. The anger, the curled lip, the bald fist, the anger, the defiant stare in the face. What do you have to say? is looking at them enthusiastic and saying, I want you to come see the man who revealed all my sins to me. This transformation was so profound that the people say, we have got to see this man for ourselves. And they go not walking, they go running up the hill to see him. Second thing she does, she invites the people to go back with her to see for themselves. She doesn't say, I'm staying here, you go check it out, see him if I'm lying. She said, come on, I'm going to take you right where he is. Come on. And so they're running up the hill. She's first one in the line. They're all following her. Third thing she does. She takes him to Jesus. And the people see for themselves. It was her testimony that compelled the people to follow her to see Jesus. Her encounter with Jesus led them to their own encounter with Jesus, which led to their conversion. That's part of the life group experience. It says in verses 39 to 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Here's fascinating. There is no record that Jesus performed any miracle in Samaria. Didn't cast out any demons, didn't heal the sick, didn't raise the dead. All he did was share himself. And that was enough for the Samaritans. He taught them from the word. He told them what salvation was like. And here's what's interesting. The Samaritan woman 
was the first person to whom Jesus ever unambiguously told his identity. She said, I know that Christ will come and reveal all things to, to us. He said, I who speak to you am he. So when he said, you know, the father said, the day will come when they're not going to worship uh, God on this mountain or any mountain, in Jerusalem or in Samaria. The father seeketh those to worship him. You may not get it, but this is an invitation. He's telling her, you don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be different. The father is seeking, not at arm's length, he's seeking people to worship you, and I am your door to him. I am inviting you to come just as you are. And so when he is with the Samaritans for two days, teaching them who he is, it is a marvel. So, five reasons why life group is where we come to interact with Jesus. First, Sunday sermons can be an academic exercise. You can gain head knowledge, but never be changed. But life group is where we learn to apply what we are learning. It is where head knowledge becomes heart knowledge. The world is continually telling us to focus on the temporal and the material. The word of God, church, life groups are giving us an entirely different message. It's telling us, no, 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 no. Focus on the spiritual and the eternal. These are the only places you will hear such messages. The church, your life group, the word of God, and fellowship with believers. And that's like a small bit compared to what's out there. Everything in the world is telling you, you need more money, you need a better job, a bigger house, uh, more, greater fame, more sex, more stuff, more stuff. All you need is more stuff. You need 10,000 more followers on your Facebook page. Your Twitter account needs to ring on high. That's what the world tells us day in and day out. But life group tells you, mm, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Second, life groups are made for us and we are made for life groups. Now, I know that sounds like a heavy sell. But what I'm saying is God has recreated us in Christ to live in community. Christ is the head, the church, the, internet, the, the invisible body of Christ are all believers. Third, it is quite possible to come to church and hide. I'm a loner. I'm a gregarious loner, but I'm a loner. I like being alone. I like to go to movies alone. I like to eat alone. I like to just be alone. I was an only child and I grooved on it. When I was a kid growing up in Chicago in the summer, I would tell my friends at, at noon, 
oh, man, I got to go in the house until 3 o'clock. Why? Well, my mom says I just have to. It's too hot outside. My mom never said any such thing. <laughs> I just wanted to be by myself and go in and read the tales of Robinson Crusoe, Sherlock Holmes. I just had books, and I was just sitting there under the air conditioning to read for three hours. And then I'd go back out, and they'd say, man, Billy, your mom is mean. And I'd say, yeah, she's really mean. It is possible to come to church, not engage, not interact, and to leave completely untouched. It is impossible to do that in a life group. Fourth, life group is where we finally, eventually, and gradually let down our guard. Mark Twain said, everyone is a moon and has a dark side which he never shows to anybody. I don't know about you, but I have, I remember being at a men's retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, one man came up to me, I was one of the speakers, one man came up to me during the break and he said, I need to talk to you alone, and his heart was heavy. I go, sure. He said, it's got to be confidential. I said, not a problem. So we went out, and I mean, it took him 10 minutes to calm down so he could speak. And he said to me, in tears, I had sex outside of marriage. And I explained one thing to him and one thing I kept to myself. The thing I explained to him was that God's grace covers all our sins. When Jesus hung on the cross, he could see the Samaritan woman. He could see you. He saw me. And he said, I love him. I'm going to die for him. I did not tell him about my own sin history because he would have had a heart attack. So, I just said, God loves you. He thought his sin was bad. If he was upset about that, man, I better not tell him anything about my life. After a year of being in our life group, one of the women shared her heart. Years of accumulated hurt and pain just came pouring out. She couldn't stop crying. And finally she stopped and she said, I've never been able to share with anyone the things I've shared with you guys. Fifth and last. Life group is a place to learn to share our testimony, our spiritual journey with other people. And when we do that, we learn we are, we're not alone. Our, our pain is not unique. Others have felt the same pain or something very much like it. Whatever you have struggled with, or are struggling with, there is probably somebody in your life group who can identify. And then finally, we can learn how God is working in the lives of other people. And that knowledge inspires, it motivates, it gives us hope. It, it, it makes us think, wow, if, if God is working in his life and he's my God, 
then I can trust he is working in my life also. Let's pray. God, you are the uncreated creator, the uncaused cause. Everything else is effect, everything else is creation. And yet you love us. You have called us forth. You have recreated us in Christ. You have called us sons and daughters and given us a new hope that cannot be shaken because our hope is not based on what we have done but what Jesus has done for us and what he is doing in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would just help us to grow, that we would be able to tell other people, come see a man who has told me all my sins and see how much he loves us.